Welcome to God at Work, Stories of Grace and Faith. I'm your host, Chuck Groover. And this week, I was unable to actually get an interview done for the podcast. So instead, I'm bringing you actually part of an interview that... that with Through Becoming God's Man Ministries... It's part of a series called Man on the Street. This is an interview that we actually did this last week with Rex Almquist of Southeast Asia Relief. And in a minute we'll get into that interview that Glenn had conducted to hear a little bit about his story of how God pretty much has led him into ministry. But before we get into the interview... I just want to provide an update. If you remember back in episode 5 when I interviewed Brian Zitt, he had mentioned about a GoFundMe page to help a family in his congregation where she was needing to go through a drug rehab program and they were raising money to help fund, to help raise the funds for her to be able to attend. And this past Sunday, it was announced that while they haven't reached the full goal, they have gotten enough to cover, and most of it from one anonymous donation, to cover the first month of the program. So they're still raising money for the rest of it, but she's actually going in this Saturday, tomorrow, for those of you that are listen, getting this podcast on the day of it. And if the GoFundMe page is still up, I will provide a link in the show notes for this episode as well if you feel led to help them reach the full amount to cover her treatment. But if you're unable to financially help, I do know that they will appreciate prayers as she goes through this program. With that being said, we now go to the interview. I'm uh, very excited today to, to uh, listen and, and introduce a uh, gentleman I met some years ago. I was very impressed by his witness, his testimony about uh, the mission that God has uh, laid out for him and, and what's going on. Without This is Rex Onquist, and Rex, without other further ado, I'd rather you just take over and whatever God's put on your heart, just share it. Well, our mission, Southeast Asian Relief, we've been in Vietnam uh, under the communist system now for 24 years. Mm -hmm. And it's not been easy. We lost our license. We're, we uh, Once we got it back, but we are a licensed NGO, non-government organization in Vietnam. And our primary uh, function there and, all, and always has been is to work with youth and children that are really poor that um, that have one parent or no parent that have been abandoned or living with relatives, um, maybe uh, have dropped out of school, uh, or, or just in a dangerous living situation because of poverty. That may also mean uh, illness, disease. Uh, it can mean just simply having to drop out of school because of not having the funds to keep going. Uh, just uh, numerous things. It could mean maybe getting up to the fourth or fifth, maybe tenth grade, and then having to drop out, and then not having any skill. 
yeah. not being employable. So it may mean vocational training. We're, we're involved uh, in Vietnam with uh, school scholarships, vocational training, helping critically ill kids get well. Um, we have a vocational training center in Da Nang City, which is in the s- northern central part of Vietnam. People that are familiar with Vietnam know that China is above it, and then way up north is Hanoi, which is the government head. And then in the center of the country, along the coast, uh, the South China Sea is Da Nang City, and that's where we operate, right in the center there. And in the big farming province around that city, and Da Nang has over a million people in it. And of course, way down south is, is used to be the Saigon, but now it's called Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, but we basically work just in the Da Nang area and Quang uh, Nam farming country in the mountains, etc. We we work with again really poor kids. We work with tribal kids, mountain kids, uh, Vietnamese mountain kids, as well as city kids. Um, but I was telling uh, you, Glenn, that that we we uh, you know we like Vietnam has never been easy to work in, and but we as a mission we've always decided to work above ground to be a witness to the uh, communist government officials that we have to work with, as well as the general people and the poor kids that we have daily contact with. But Vietnam, there is not what is called political correctness there. (laughs) And uh, so when I go into Vietnam, we have four staff, we have four Christian national staff working full-time for Southeast Asian Relief, and from the very beginning we put the major responsibility on the Christian nationals. In fact, we told them we're not going to be like other uh, agencies to having a having a Western person in, in, in Da Nang sitting in an office and controlling things. We we want to help you be able to understand the work that the Lord's called us to do, and then you do it yourself. Uh, you take the major responsibility. We'll stand behind you, give you guidance and direction if necessary, but we'll basically uh, be your partner and help you. Uh, and of course, Vietnam is poor, and Christians are poor. And uh, uh, so we have been the primarily, primarily been involved in fundraising, gathering funds, and then sending funds into Vietnam. And then I go into Vietnam. We used to go in twice a year. I used to be there during the summer, fall, and I would go later in the year. Uh, but uh, because the airplane ticket fare jumping so high now, it's two thousand dollars to go back and forth with a, with a working visa. $2,000 can help a lot of kids. So mm-hmm. now I usually go into Vietnam about right now and stay June, July, August, and September. And You'll be leaving shortly, I believe, for that trip. Yeah, there, but things have happened uh, recently which which has changed that. Uh, but we have been concerned because um, we we are, are we know that we cannot do missionary work because that's illegal. It's not allowed. I, I cannot bring kids to church. I cannot even have kids walk with me to church. That's missionary activity, and I've been brought in the police department several times because they've seen me walking to church with, with groups of kids, and, and they they say, "Who are you, and where are you from?" And you can't do that because that's missionary activity. You're a foreigner. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like America where you walk out the street and you see kids, kids and families from all over the world, and you don't know whether they're American citizens or whatever. Over there, it's totally different. It, it's, it's all Vietnamese people, mm-hmm. and so any foreigner like myself, we stick out. You know very readily because there's not that many of us and uh, and so when we go into Vietnam I'm supervised all the time you have to have a government partner which for us is the Department of Labor Veteran Affairs and Social Services the police have my daily working schedule I can't walk across the street 
if this was Vietnam, I cannot walk across the street and talk to someone and just be friendly. That's not allowed. If, if, the, if the person has a home that has a roof that needs repaired or has a critically ill child or has a child or a young person needing vocational training uh, or a younger person needing school scholarships or something like that, then, then with government approval I can go and talk. But usually I always have government official, at least one government official with me mm-hmm. listening to my conversation because the other thing too is there's very few Western people that can speak the language. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, I began speaking it years ago when I was in the military. I had to. And if you're going to be close to kids and want to really understand them, you have to speak the language. I would really appreciate if you take just a moment because even though it's been some number of years, I remember your testimony, your witness, and I'd like for you to share how your ministry got started. Well, uh, I was like many other um, young people um, during the Vietnam era. Um, I was, uh, I, I felt the calling of the Lord at that time to, to be in missions, and I, I felt that He was leading me into missionary aviation. So I had uh, spent about four years in flight school and, and uh, working in an airport trying to finance all that stuff, and then. I had three years of mechanic training, but I, but I was never able to get my A and P, my airframe and power plant rating, because I was drafted. Um, and uh, when I was drafted, uh, I always had I always had a love for uh, poor kids and youth because I had been involved with Youth for Christ when I was in high school and college. And uh, but uh, but like everyone else, I didn't want to go to Vietnam. I didn't really know much about it. I knew it was on the other side of the earth. Uh, but I was drafted, and uh, I, I was told, well, you know, you've had uh, quite a bit of education at that point, so you, you won't be put in the infantry. Well, I was drafted right after the Tet Offensive in 1968. Mm-hmm. If you remember, in 1968 there was an agreement between North and South Vietnam where there would be a stand-down and there would be peace, and the families would, would uh, be able to celebrate the Lunar New Year, be back in their homes and families. Well. Uh, the South Vietnam did that. They stood down, they went back to their families to celebrate the New Year, but the Communist North did not. They stockpiled uh, war material in jungles and everything just broke loose. And of course, uh, the South Vietnamese had honored the, the, uh, the agreement where the North did not. And so at that point, South Vietnam almost lost the war. If it wasn't for U.S. presence there, because we were not on stand down, um, you know, you would have been lost. And so right after that happened, then everybody was drafted. Mm. And so I was drafted. And I was put exactly where I thought I wouldn't be, in the infantry. So all I ever learned to do in the military was learn how to, to fire all their weapons and uh, live in the jungle and uh, and kill people. I had a part of, a certain small part of that at the very end where I was trained in infantry intelligence. And uh, so I went into Vietnam with a sergeant rank, um, Again, not really wanting to go, but I didn't know what the Lord was doing at the time, but with, with the Infantry Intelligence um, MOS, Military Occupational Specialty, I lived with South Vietnamese military. I never lived with U.S. forces. And um, I lived in the mountains, and, uh, and so I had a lot of contact with um, tribal kids and Sri kids and, uh, and then mountain Vietnamese kids. And uh, we were told by the... I was with the U.S. Army as with the 199th Light Infantry Brigade. We were told never trust the kids because they could be uh, booby-trapped or, or they could, you 
will learn where you are and tell whether the NVA, the North Vietnamese Army, or the, the local communist supporters of the Viet Cong where you are and all that stuff. So, but but when I stepped off the airplane, uh, I knew immediately I was in a very very poor country, and uh, I saw thousands of kids. The fathers were of course all in the military, and uh, there were real poor kids. Um, uh, we we were kind of confined when I first went over there, of course, to a military base. Um, but because of my rank, I was a sergeant, I was given a lot more freedom, and so I was able to, to leave uh, the, the compound and walk around and, and see some things. And so I saw all of these kids, and they'd come up to me, and they would talk to me, and all that. Of course, they didn't understand a thing they were saying, but, but they, they, they were surprised because uh, I was out with the people. Um, the military was always kept pretty much behind uh, the, the military compounds. But uh, that's how I, I began to sense that I was in a real poor country with a lot of kids, uh, a lot, and, and uh, it was quite dangerous, and I could not speak. Uh, I was pickpocketed uh, soon because I, I realized kids, these kids are really sharp, and they're, they're smart, and they, they see Americans with nice military uniforms and being all clean and all that. And, so I, I always treated the kids well, but I, I, was, I, I didn't really know how to handle them because of my, I was told never to, you know, to have too much to do with them. So, but but I, I didn't do anything to harm them in any way, and I, I kind of tried to stay away from them. Well, you can't stay away from them because they'll, they'll come to you. And they came to me several times, and they would take my hands, and uh, then a couple of guys would come behind me and then wrestle through my back pockets. And so I lost uh, some things that way. And so I thought, well, you know, this is just not going to work. I've got to be able to communicate with these kids. But I had a love for them because I was a Christian at the time. But I'd never been around severe poverty, and, I, and I've been around kids that really, uh, if they didn't steal, you know, they might not have enough food for that day. <laughs> so I got a dictionary, and I began uh, learning Vietnamese, grabbing anybody that I could find. And, and a lot of times it was the kids, and I would point to a word, and they would say it, and... It would be Vietnamese, English, English, Vietnamese. So I would point to this word and try to communicate with them. But it was tonal. I didn't understand the tones. But, but I was able to, to gather a vocabulary over time. And because of that, uh, it, it was the tribal kids, mountain kids, the street kids that saved my life. Because we had, I had orders. I was in a small unit. I had a truck driver and I had a translator. And I had uh, 12 young North Vietnamese Army NVA guys that had been captured. And they were given the choice of going to prison or, or helping the free government of the South, the Republic of Vietnam. And of course, they didn't want to go to prison, so they said, okay, well. But that was our unit, and uh, we had orders. We were supposed to go to different hamlets and areas to get information. These young North NBA guys were supposed to give us uh, intelligence information uh, through our translator about if there were any NBA or Viet Cong in the area and what the, what the plans were and all that stuff. Then we would try to get this information to the, uh, the U.S. Army, the 199th Light Infantry Brigade. But just to make a long story short, I, w I saw combat, and I walked into to very dangerous positions. I, the, uh, sometimes I, I remember that where, where the Lord really woke me up one time was I was new there, and I got orders to visit this certain hamlet. So, so we were walking down this trail, and a group of these uh, mountain kids, uh, they, they, they had known me, uh, they... they they, they evidently they trusted me because I always treated them well, 
but they came up right in front of me and put their hands on my chest and, and they shook their hands and you know they were talking Vietnamese. I know now what they were saying, but I didn't know then. But I knew for sure they did not want me to keep going. And, uh, and I thought to myself, well, um, I've got to go, I've got orders. And, and so I just nicely kind of pushed them aside and said, you know, I've got to go, I've got to go. So I walked on down the trail and went right into an ambush and uh, by sniper fire. And boy, I'll tell you, uh, bullets were just flying all over, just missing me by an inch or so. And so I, I dropped to the ground right away as well as uh, the other guys, and we crawled out of there and got out of the way. But that woke me up because I knew that those boys were trying to, they knew they knew where the, these NVA guys or where the Mekong were, and they knew where the ambush was, they knew all of that, and they knew I was walking into it, but because I did not listen to them, you know, I just obeyed my orders, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I could have been killed right then. So from that point on, I really started working a lot more learning Vietnamese, I was able to communicate with the kids, and I began to help them, they, they needed a way uh, to survive, uh, so what we did was uh, I needed a way to clean, have clean uniforms. So they would wash my uniforms, and I would do a little amount of money and give them money to buy soap and stuff. And they'd hang my uniforms on barbed wire and all that stuff. So, but at least I had the uniforms that were clean, and I could give them a little bit of money. Uh, over time, I had a lot of holes in my uniform because of the barbed wire, but at least I was clean. Um, and, and it was a relationship where, where they were not stealing, they were, they were working to help me, uh, but they were they were my protection, and if it wasn't for them, I walked into some real difficult places three or four times. Uh, one time I was really pinned down, and uh, these these uh, mountain kids would crawl to me, and uh, and uh, you know they they would say, you know, I mentioned to follow them, so I followed them. They led me all the way out, you know, crawling all over the place, and got me out of the area and where I could finally get back to safety, or else I'd been you know probably captured or. Definitely, um, that happened three or four times. And so when I, I survived the military, um, I didn't really like the being in, uh, in combat. I was supposed to be in combat, but I, I definitely saw, saw that. And um, sometimes we were, our, our unit was taken out of the area to ride shotgun on convoys to protect the convoys. And so we, we saw combat in that way too. And uh, that, that bothered me because um, if if we were if we I mean, usually we'd always go by a, a place by the convoy where an ambush had been set up and they were they, the NVA the Vietcong had firepower going across the road and you had to go you had to you can't just sit and it's more dangerous because then you sit there and, and fire at you so you got to keep going you get put the you know gas pedals to the metal and ram run through but you have to go through that fire area and um, um, that happened several times and then we when we got to the next little village. Or Hamlet, these guys that were, uh, you know, the truck drivers for the convoys, they'd be all angry. These are American guys. They'd be all angry, and uh, they'd pick up rocks and throw at kids and throw at the people at the next uh, Hamlet and all that swear and cuss. But I, I, I outranked them, so a lot of times I would get out of the truck and I would, I would tell them, "No, you can't do this. You cannot do this because you're going to lose the war. We have to. It's not these people's fault that we, the fault that we were in an ambush." You know, maybe three or four kilometers down the road, these people might be completely innocent. We don't know that. So, but throwing rocks at them and swearing at them—that's gonna, what's gonna—that's gonna just—they're gonna get to the NVA, the Viet Cong, because they're gonna be anti-American and they're gonna tell us where we are and all that stuff. It's gonna make things worse. So just don't do it. I had to do that uh, several times. I remember one time I had a truck driver who didn't listen to me, 
and he was he was spitting at kids, and uh, and uh, I got really angry. And when you get angry, of course, you have a lot of adrenaline. And I was I was small, but I was so angry, I grabbed him and pulled him out of the truck through the truck window. And he was much bigger than I was, and I slammed him up against the truck. And I said, "That's exactly how we're going to lose the war." And I locked and loaded on him, which meant I put a around in the chamber at an M16, which I had to carry with me all the time, and pointed at him and said, you know, you do that one more time, and uh, you're going to be in serious trouble. I'm going to report you, and, I, and, I'm, I'm, and if I have to, you know, shoot your hand or something like that, you know, I'll do it. But none of this, none of this stuff's going to take place. And so uh, that happened numerous times, but um, through it all, when I came back out of the military, and uh, when I got the GI Bill, so I went to college, but I completely changed. I... I still loved aviation. I still loved to fly and all that. But I switched from aviation into uh, a juvenile corrections, social work in juvenile corrections, and uh, I got a master's degree in juvenile corrections uh, and medical uh, social work, and uh, went back to Vietnam. I just I could not. We we had not the U.S. forces had not pulled out completely. It was not 1972 yet. It was not uh, 19. See, must have been close to that. It was about 1971 when I went overseas. There was a children's hospital that needed a social worker to communicate with kids because kids were dying and they shouldn't have been dying because they, they were not dying because of the, the diseases or, or the, the combat injuries. They were dying because of depression. They didn't know where their parents were or whatever. So <clears throat> that's when I, then I went over there and I worked for about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And then it got too dangerous and I had to leave. Um, I came back and I worked uh, for a while in the United States, but then... The, the huge refugee camps then began in Southeast Asia where people were escaping out of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Both people were, were landing on uh, different um, island countries, and the Laos and Cambodian families and their children were trying to escape and walk out of Cambodia and Laos. So they had these huge camps in Thailand, Malaysia, Hong Kong, Philippines, Indonesia. <clears throat> and so uh, I decided to work in the camps. Mm-hmm. So I worked in the camps with another company, Numb Miners kids that have walked in the camps without parents from about 19, uh, um, about 19, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, fell in 75, about 1978 to about 1990, and then went into Vietnam and uh, finally got into Vietnam and began working in 93. Our mission was one of the first organizations that uh, had, that, that had legal permission to work in Vietnam before things were normalized. We got permission from the State Department. To work with kids, and so I went over there, and uh, and uh, it was hard starting because the the, the the you know North Vietnam had taken over everything, and there were Russians all over the place, and uh, and uh, the Russians thought I was Russian. They come up and start speaking me in Russian. I don't, know, I'm not, I don't understand. They don't know where I came from. I, I was able to get into Vietnam because I could leave a refugee camp and go over there and visit. And so I I visited. Well, the first time I got in there was about uh, about um, uh, in, uh, let's see maybe seventy eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, but didn't get in there. Uh, and we started in ninety three, so uh, I got in there about eighty nine. No, you could not get into Vietnam in the seventies. I got in there in the eighties, the, the end of the eighties, as a tourist. Uh, just to see what it was like, and people were sleeping on sidewalks, and it was just really bad, really bad. And then finally got in there, got in there in the early 90s, and then finally got State Department of permission, but we had to get Vietnam government permission 
so that took another couple of years, right? Go in there and talk to government officials and say, you know, we're in, we organize as Southeast. We we were known before as Aid to Refugees Incorporated, so we had to change our name because that would well, that wouldn't go over very good with with the Communist Socialist Republic of Vietnam. So we changed our name to Southeast Asian Relief, and uh, it took a you know couple visits, and then finally the man, uh, an older man in uh, in Danang City. Uh, Department of Veteran, of, uh, sorry, the Department of Foreign Affairs. I don't remember his name, but he finally said, "Well, let's let, let let's let this American uh, see what he can do because we need help. We're very poor, and he has a heart for kids." And I was honest. I told him I was formerly in the military. They said, "Why do you care about our kids?" And I told him. <laughs> so um, they, they, it's one thing they understood, and they didn't trust me, but this older man allowed me to begin work. So that's how we started, and and uh, we, were, we were the only agency at that time to pick our own staff, so we found some Christians and had them work for us. And that's true today. We're about the only organization today that has not government-appointed staff working for us, which are connected with the Communist Party. We have Christian nationals that we have chosen or something, but that was because we were there, you know, years and years ago. Thank you for listening to God at Work. Stories of Grace and Faith. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at God at Work Podcast. If you have comments, suggestions, or a story you would like to be considered for the podcast, you can email us at stories at godatworkpodcast.com. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support us, go to patreon.com forward slash Podcast. Or you can also support us by leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. God at Work, Stories of Grace and Faith is brought to you by Becoming God's Man Ministries and is recorded and produced by me, Chuck Groover. Theme music for God at Work is by the band 39 Stripes and can be found at facebook.com 39stripes. And again... Thank you for listening.